Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest this morning is Joe Lample, who is the producer and star of Growing a Greener World TV <laughs> and podcast. And you just appeared on with the Weather Channel the other morning. Right, right. And what were you talking about on the, on the Weather Channel? I missed that episode. Uh, uh, three must-do things for fall to get ready for winter. You know, it's, what are those? Well, the first one that I talked about was uh, getting a soil test, you know, mm-hmm. because it's a good time of year to do it. And um, the labs are typically a little bit slower in the fall. Mm-hmm. And you need to know what's in your soil anyway because some people are improving their lawns in the fall. And there are certain things you need to do in the fall and based on the information that comes from the soil test. So I felt like, well, gosh, let's go ahead and talk about that. The other one was using mulch. I, I You know, every... Every day of the year is a good day to use mulch. But in the fall, you know, it has certain applications like keeping your soil warmer and the roots warmer for those marginally hardy plants that mm-hmm. may die down to the ground and continue to die if they don't have sufficient warmth around the roots. And mulch can help with that. Plus, when you're planting new plants, it helps retain the moisture in the soil. And fall is the best time for planting, in my opinion. So you need to have that moil- that moisture stay in the soil. And then the third thing, was for people that have, you know, all these ceramic and uh, terracotta pots outside. And as it gets cold, Mm -hmm. what happens to those pots? And some are quite expensive. They tend to crack. And the reason they tend to crack is that the... uh, the moisture inside of the container freezes, and, and water is the only thing that when it gets colder, it expands. And so you put this pressure on an inflexible surface. And so the only thing that can happen, because the force of the freezing is greater than the ability of the container to not crack, it cracks. Mm-hmm. So I recommended that you put some, of, uh, some bubble wrap, line the container. So if you have an existing container with plants in it, you take, you know, you take your plant out. Or if you're putting a new container installing a new container, put bubble wrap, bubble wrap in first so that when the soil freezes, there's some give inside of the container that hopefully absorbs enough of that pressure so that you don't have to, your your containers don't crack. Now, this is assuming that you don't move them in, of course. These are for the people that don't want to move their containers in. Well, and it's really hard to move a great big ceramic exactly. container in. Once it's planted, especially. Yeah. I had a, a fig tree that was, um, it wasn't supposed to stay in the container as long as it did, but, you know, one thing leads to another, mm-hmm. and, and that I'd potted it on a couple of times, and that sucker was huge. Yeah. And it just finally broke the container, just of its own root strength. But, yeah, it does get heavy. That's why I don't grow some of the tropical fruits I used to grow, yeah. like bananas and stuff. It gets really old hauling it in and out. But if you're living in an apartment and you're on a balcony, mm-hmm. that's all you have, so mm-hmm. you have to protect it some way. Yeah. So for you know, for the people that have, like you said, maybe just one prized uh, lemon tree or something mm-hmm. like that in a container, it's all they've got. They want to protect it, and so and the container. Yeah. So it's a good way to do that. Of course, if you've got a lemon tree, you're going to have to bring it in anyway in most yeah. of the country. Well, this is true. Even even in this area, it's kind of marginal, but um, you know, it can be done. It can yeah. be done. Yeah. I have a friend that lives where north of New Orleans, where it does get cold sometimes, and what she does in the winter time for her stuff that needs to be frost protected is she has the old sea Christmas lights. 
Mm-hmm. And she will wrap the plant in plastic and then put the Christmas tree, well, put the Christmas tree lights around it first and then put plastic over it. And if it's really cold, she'll throw a blanket over that. And that keeps them all toasty warm. They think that they've been in the tropics all winter long. <laughs> I remember how hot those lights can get. Yeah. Now, can you still buy those lights? I don't know that you can buy them outright mm-hmm. at a store anymore, but, you know, they're all over at yard sales. Right. And, of course, you want to use the outdoor lights. You don't want to use the indoor lights right. outdoors. Right. That could get a little dangerous. Yeah. And, you know, we're getting to the point now where a lot of them have been used and used, and you have to be very careful about, you know, using cracked ones and, and be careful of what you're buying. Yeah. Now, I don't know um, about LEDs, whether they would give off a sufficient amount of heat. It they seems to me heat. that when I've been touching mine, because I've got an LED set up right above my washing machine so I can see what I'm doing, and there is no heat from that. Yeah, no. The only thing that's going to do if you if you use that application, it's just going to give the uh, the pest a little more light to do what they do. <laughs> <laughs> that's about it. There's no heat with the LEDs. Yeah. Well, and and but fluorescents. Do they ever make Christmas tree bulbs that no, fluorescent? No, I've the, never seen those them. ballasts. I think you, know, you went right off. to LEDs from yeah. um, whatever I, the I other. I think one was. so. I think so. I remember when the first minis came out. Yeah, and I even still have a set of those very first mini Italian lights, and those right. actually throw out a fair amount of heat. Oh, really? Yeah, I guess those it's really still the same old, old concept, though. I think so. It's plain old electricity going yeah. through a, a incandescent, incandescent filament. Yeah, and so it, it throws off heat. But anyway, there's a lot of ways that people can protect their plants in the winter, and you mentioned mulching and. Up north, when we would mulch, we would wait for most things because we didn't zone push as much as we here in the south do. Um, and so we would wait until the soil would get cold yeah. and then cover it up yeah. to prevent freezing right. and thawing. And you know what I just read? You know, we've been told to always pick off all the leaves off of our roses if you live up north and you have diseased roses. Mm-hmm. They're saying don't bother to do that anymore. That there's so much inoculum in the ground already that it's not going to make What's the point? a bit of difference. Right. Which is a revelation to us. Hmm. Now, what was your worst problem this year in your garden? Um, so, I love to grow tomatoes. And, and maybe the reason I love to grow them so much, besides the you know the output, I love to eat them, is the challenge of growing them. You know, I think everybody has success from the time they put the seedling into the ground until maybe that first tomato. And at some point in the process, especially in the south, you start getting those diseases. Early blight leads to this and that, and then late blight maybe. But anyway, there's something that's going to happen to your tomato plants that's going to get ahead of you. And as an organic gardener, I believe strongly in proactivity on the gardener's part to do everything that we can to try to stay ahead of that through sanitation and um, organic inputs, but lots of hands-on maintenance at the right time of day and watering at the soil level and mulching and all of that. Consequently, it's very time-consuming. And I found myself, thank goodness, I didn't have as many days on the road this year, so I was able to be out there in the garden probably almost every day. And this is without an intern this year. So I really was tuned in to what's happening in my garden. But then uh, I guess we took a family vacation, so we were gone for a week. And while we were gone, we had some rain. Mm-hmm. Which, whether or not I'm gone or not, doesn't matter. We still have the rain. Yeah. But the rain, uh, you know, was what led to those those 
first signs of trouble that got ahead of me, and I couldn't keep up with it after that. So by the end of July, I pulled out 80% of my tomato plants because that just, it, you know, it gotten to that point where it wasn't even worth the trouble of trying. And it just looked so bad, you know, and the output had gone down. So tomatoes again. Yeah. I had lost a lot of mine by probably the end of July, too, even mm-hmm. though I had been out there cutting and cutting yes. and taking off the bad leaves. But when you have three weeks when it's cool and wet yeah, and it rains every day, yeah. or worse, it just that little mist, yeah. it doesn't ever dry off. It doesn't ever stop. And... Late blight in particular mm-hmm. is just a really bad thing. Yeah. Now, I'd gotten some seeds of the um, AAS winter jasper that is late blight resistant, and that's going to be my go-to cherry for the springtime next year. It did get septoria really bad, mm-hmm. but it it was right next to where I'd had some plants that were very badly covered up in late blight, and it didn't get it. Huh. So I think I'm going to le- use... A few more hybrids this year and uh-huh. spend more time on disease resistance. Now, another one of the tomatoes that was late blight, quite late blight resistant and didn't get it, even though it was another plant hanging over it that was just dripping, yeah. know, practically dripping the fungus, was rosella purple. Huh. That was one of the tomatoes from Craig LaHuyer's, um Dwarf Tomato Project. Yeah. And it didn't succumb until very, very late. And then I cut off most of the plant, but I saw a little tiny green sprout at the bottom. Uh By this time, it had stopped raining, finally, and I just let that grow. And and it's still, it's about about a foot tall now, and I have hopes. I'm not going to bring it in the greenhouse, because I don't want to take a chance on bringing late blight into the greenhouse. But I think... We just need to be a little bit more interested in disease resistance. One of the ones that you gave me was uh, Tiger Tom. Yes. And not only did I love that tomato, I'd never grown it before. I love the look of it. It's about a golf ball size, maybe yeah. a little bit bigger. Beautiful in color, striped and just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And it was so tasty. The skin was slightly thicker than I like, but the flavor that you got out of that little tomato was amazing. But what I was going to tell you was... I found that to be the most disease-resistant, prolific tomato plant of the 20-something varieties that I grew this year. That's a really good thing to know. Where I had it, I had it in between some really desperately diseased plants that that got late blight really early. Mm. And you've seen my garden in the driveway with all the trees and shrubs around it and the house on two sides. Mm -hmm. There really isn't any air circulation. Mm -hmm. But it did hang on for quite a long time. Yeah, And I'm so happy that you liked it. Loved it. And you, you really set me up this year. I had a lot of ones that, I, that did. You gave me Ferris wheel that did yeah. really well. And uh, Pink Accordion. Did you give me that one or did Bree give, give me that one? Okay. That one did really well. But anyway, it was a fun year in spite of the perpetual disease challenges uh, with all those new varieties. It just you know adds to the excitement because every year is different. You never know what the year is going to provide. Mm-hmm. But with new varieties and on some of these great heirlooms that I didn't have exposure to before. It was every day was a new surprise out there. It really tickled me that when you were talking about your favorite tomato varieties mm-hmm. with the folks over at Savvy Gardener, the two of them that I had given you, the uh-huh. Tiger Tom and the, and the Black Crim were two of your favorites. Uh-huh. And and that just that just made me And you me gave smile. me Sun Gold too, which yes, I you know I it was familiar sure. with, but you gave me my Sun Gold too. Yeah. And so I think we have similar um, likes as far as taste is concerned, kind of acid and really t- 
Pow tomatoes. Absolutely. And Craig, who also likes plants, tomatoes with a lot of pow. Yes. So I think when we, we can look at tomatoes, if you're thinking about what you might want to grow, is look at his list of his favorites. Oh, you and, know it. And take a look and, and see what you got. But I will keep you supplied with anything that I hear of that, that looks good. You know, Ferris wheel was one that Craig brought back from the brink, uh-huh. um, getting it out of, out of the National Seed Bank. Yeah. And... Uh, it's just a hoot. It's just a nice tomato. It, it, it's great that we have Craig LaHouillers of the world out there mm-hmm. to uh, to do some of that work for us. You know, some bring back mm-hmm. some of those forgotten tomato varieties yeah. like Seed Savers, where he gets a lot of his discoveries. But then he grows them out and tests. And he's got that science background. You know, he that very inquisitive mind mm-hmm. and a guy that likes to be thrown a challenge and see what works under different conditions on our behalf. Yeah. And and he's one of the pioneers, along with Carolyn Mayo. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting, though. Carolyn Mayo, she's also, you know, she was a college professor. Uh, she's growing up in New York State, so her conditions are different than ours. Right. But she also prefers a much milder tomato, too. Hmm. So if it's on her top ten list, I know that there are some people that are going to really like it. Huh. But I'm not going to be one of them. Yeah. Because I don't like a mild tomato. I, I, don't, I, I don't care for them. You know, you get mo- most of the yellow tomatoes that people rave, rave about. Oh, I just, you know. No, they're like cardboard. Yeah, and I'm a coffee drinker. To me, that would be like uh, weak coffee or cheap wine. Yeah. You know, I like the complexity. <laughs> yeah, the complex flavors, I think, are, are what really gets it. But tomato growing has really gotten to be a challenge just about all over the United States. I've talked to people, um, you know, the only place that they're not having trouble is really in the arid parts of the country. Mm-hmm. The Midwesterners that yeah. had been having really good luck with their tomatoes this year are just not, weren't having it because they got deluge after deluge. Some parts in the Midwest got like a foot of rain this year. And, you know, in the three months in the spring. Yeah. Yeah, and we were we were really close to that. Though we had a lot more misty days than we did heavy rains early yeah. on. Yeah, the moisture will get you. And then when it got hot, it just dried up, mm-hmm. which is also typical. But I think we're going to have to go more now as a as a group for tomatoes that have more disease resistant. We're going to have to just do it. That's all. We're going to take a little break right now, but when we come back, we'll talk about what else is going on in the garden, what were your successes, and what were your failures. We'll be right back after this. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Joe Lample from Growing a Greener World TV, and we've been talking tomatoes for the first segment. And now I want to talk about Joe's tomato cages, because if you have been following the show or his blog, um, you know that you created some great square tomato cages. Yes. 
Now, tell us about them. Well, you know, when you grow the indeterminate tomatoes, they, they're like Jack and the Beanstalk. Mm-hmm. And at some point, you've got to figure out how you're going to support them. And every tomato cage support that I've ever seen commercially is inadequate, in my opinion. Yep. You know, the cones, the flimsy cones... You get what you pay for. They're inexpensive, but they're only so tall, and they're floppy, and, you know... They're good for eggplants and peppers. Exactly. But they're marketed for tomatoes, and they you know, they really don't do the job, unless it's a, it's a patio variety, for example. But anyway, I had not found a support that I was happy with. So what do you do in that case? You try to come up with your own system. And so around the farm, we have those livestock panels that we use for a lot of other things that you get at Tractor Supply for $20, and they're typically 16 feet long and about almost 5 feet tall, a little under. And the versatility of those has been fantastic uh, as you look to use them in the garden. And, you know, every day or every week I would think of another way to use them. And then I finally said, you know, if I can use them for supports for peas and cucumbers and things like that, and they're bendable enough, they're sturdy and yet they're bendable, I'll make them into tomato cages. So that's how the idea started. And then it was just sort of an outdoor laboratory, and I, did, and I thought through it and cut up a few and came up with a, uh, a pattern, I guess, that was tall enough because that was always one of the problems. I never mm-hmm. found a tomato cage that was tall enough for me. And it was wide enough because the, the livestock panel, as you buy it, provides the opportunity for you to cut it down and still keep it wide as a tomato support. So I had the width, I had the height, I had the sturdiness of it. I like the uniformity of the square, so I thought it looked good. It's galvanized, so it's going to weather nicely. And um, at the end of the year, the way that I did it was, although it's a, it's a square support in the ground, there are two panels at 90 degrees each. So you just put them up t- together to form the square. Mm-hmm. But when you take them down at the end of the season... You know, they're just 90-degree supports, and then they just stack on top of each other. So now you also have the benefit of being able to store a lot of them all on top of each other in a relatively small space, which is probably one of the two primary advantages over the round wire panels, that you know, the concrete reinforcing mm-hmm. cones that so many people use. I've used them, too, and I think they're they're very functional, but they rust easily because they're not meant to, you know aesthetically please anybody and and they're round and so you could i guess you could unhook them and lay them out but they still have the memory of yep, wanting they to come still back spring up, back spring back and they can be kind of dangerous so i wanted to eliminate that and so that's why i came up with these and they turned out to be fantastic in the garden now because you had the disease problems that you did and you said you had pretty much everything you had late blight early mm-hmm. blight um, what else did you have i had septoria leaf spot mm-hmm. i had bacterial blight i had early blight you know you name it i think by the end of the season i probably had it yeah unfortunately that's the problem for a lot of us with especially with the wet spring yeah so how are you going to clean them up because now typically we would use a bleach and water yeah something like that but wouldn't that tend to make the galvan wouldn't that have a reaction with the galvanized steel well it's a good question as you're asking me that i'm wondering the same thing and i've not had a second season with them yet so i don't know and let me ask you this i mean would would them being exposed to the elements over the course of what is that six or eight months heat and cold potential i mean there's what host is on those i mean how how does that bacteria or that disease survive on a non-host i don't know but when you consider that so many of them are 
present in the soil and like late blight for example right. and and of course if you don't mulch your tomatoes right away when you plant them this stuff starts splashing up on your tomato plant so if it can survive in the soil I think in the soil, though, there may be some some sort of host or um, symbiotic relationship with other organisms in the soil Could that be. allows them to persist. And there's a food source, and there's I don't know what. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm fascinated with that, but I don't know enough about it. But I would, I sort of thought, you know, the layman in me thought, well, you know, you keep those cages out in the open environment over the course of. Uh, you know, the rest of the fall and into the winter and whatever the elements provide, and the, that's enough time for maybe those diseases to not live any longer. I could totally be wrong, and, and I'll have to spray some. What I'll have to do is try yeah. some with the bleach spray, and if it, if it changes the complexion or the look of it, we'll see if I like it, and if not, then I'll know not to do that. Now, the only thing I can say is I took to using... Well, of course, I had used wooden stakes for a long time because that's what we used up north, but I discovered that the termites get them in one season down here. So I switched all over to steel stakes, um, tea stakes, pretty much. And I found that if I did not keep the stakes and the cages clean, I would get diseases. And even that was even when I, my garden was still big enough to move to rotate my com- crops considerably. So I'm thinking that there may be, and maybe it's just a matter of I didn't quite get all every last bit of dirt off of it, or maybe that they actually do survive. This is a good experiment. I think going forward, one of the things that I'm going to do each year is a lot of side by side comparisons. Mm-hmm. And I'll be the laboratory, you know. I'll be the crash test gardener. And so we'll do uh, maybe a, a, a cage that I didn't do anything, any treatment to mm-hmm. next to one that I did. And all the other variables are the exact same. So the only exception, the only difference is the treatment of the cage. And we'll see if that makes any difference. And, and you know, you could take that theory out onto every possible scenario in the garden, changing yeah, the pH. And, and you could, and... I always like to experiment in the garden and because it tells you so much and it helps you grow as a gardener. Right. But it also answers some of these mysterious questions. But then in the case of the tomato cages, wouldn't you also have to make sure that you're growing the same variety of yeah, tomato? Everything that else you would be had? the same. Um, because otherwise, of course, it may be a variety that's not All the others would be constant. Disease. You know, the only variable would be the fact that one tomato cage was D. Diseased? Is that <laughs> sanitized? <laughs> yes, <they are. laughs> yeah, sanitized versus not, uh, and that would be the one variable, and that's that's how we could test that. And the and the thing about Jeff Gilman, who I asked you about a minute ago, you know, he's he's kind of the the nutty professor in a good way. You know, you love this guy, mm-hmm. but he loves to do those kind of experiments, and he's done a lot of those, but. He would be a good one to also have doing that, and Craig's the same way. He likes sure. to experiment as well. So maybe we come up with a list of things that we're testing for. Just, and just because it, you know, I may have one outcome in my garden doesn't mean that Craig is going to have the same outcome in his or Jeff's going to have the same outcome in his. But if we all three have the same outcome using the same variable, I would say it's a safe conclusion that what yeah. we did works. Of course, I, I think the weather is going to play a big part in that, too, because one of the reasons we all had such disease problems um, here in the south mm-hmm. in the spring was that it was so very, very wet for so long and so cool. Yeah, that's true. I mean, even if we have a sanitary cage with yeah. the new challenges. I suppose you knows? could you could um, 
change that up a little bit by using some overhead irrigation if you wanted to go that far. But I, th- I think it's an interesting puzzle. I'll be curious. I'm going to see if well, we'll ask our friend Craig if he knows if any research that's been done on it. You should do that and, and let us know. Yeah, I, I think that would be fun. Now, you, when we were driving down here today, mm-hmm. you mentioned um, a problem that you had in one of your raised beds. And yeah. to recap, you would use horse manure from your barn mm-hmm. when you were first creating your, your beds. And that episode is online for people that want to watch and see how you built those amazing raised beds. But you didn't realize that the horses had been fed with uh, hay that it had a, per- a long-acting uh, herbicide on them. Mm-hmm. And even though I knew that that risk was out there, and I, the irony was that I would go around the country in my public talks and warn everybody about this risk. So here I am coming back to my own garden, looking at my own manure pile, anxious to add it to my raised beds, my new raised beds, because I appreciate the value of manure. But I let my mind believe that my manure did not have the risk of persistent herbicide in it because when I would look over at this heaping pile, I would see things growing out of it. So that was my justification that, well, clearly there's the evidence that I'm good because if there were herbicide in that, those things wouldn't be growing out of it. But I didn't take it to the next step, and that was to realize that what was growing out of it were grass like weeds versus broadleaf weeds, which is what the herbicide is designed to kill. Mm-hmm. And there were no broadleaf weeds coming out of the manure pile because there was herbicide in there. I forgot to make that association. So lo and behold, I added to my garden beds about 20% volume mm. and then plant my plants. And I think I'm just going to have the best garden in the world. And then within two weeks, I noticed the obvious signs of herbicide damage. And I immediately knew that my... My hope that I had clean manure was right down the drain. And so the risk of of using persistent herbicide is that it's not just one bad year after that. It's multiple bad years after that because the reason they call it persistent is that it doesn't easily degrade. In fact, it, it it's almost impossible to break it down on your own. It just takes time more than anything else. So here we go. Fast forward three seasons into the future this summer. I have I have done enough to um, remediate the soil on my own. I mean, to the extent that I could, with good organic practices and exposure to UV light and moisture and heat and all the things they tell you to do. And yet, there was one section of one bed that exhibited similar symptoms from the first year. And I thought, my gosh, you know, really? Three years later, really? Sure enough, um, well, what I did was I pulled out the plant that was exhibiting the symptoms, thinking, well, it could be the plant. Let's see if it's the plant. Let's replant another one like it, same variety, in that spot. And if it does well, it was the plant. But if it exhibits the same symptoms, it was the soil. And guess what? It was the soil. It was the soil. Same symptoms. So one part of one bed still had symptoms of the persistent herbicide three years later, uh, which is is a little befuddling because all my beds had that in there. And most of my plants and all my other beds did fine. So there was just this one concentrated area. I don't know if, if herbicide migrates or, or what, but anyway, uh, clearly it was still there. Or maybe it just had a little more bit more manure in that area right. and less soil. Right. You know, maybe it hadn't settled as much, and mm-hmm. so you didn't put as much extra soil. Because you went out and got composted, you got composted stuff with um, 
organic material and soil in yeah. it, didn't she, with, and granite grit. Yeah, yeah. So now, are you going to do a bioassay? Yes, I'm going to do a bioassay, which is a great question. And for those that don't know what that is, that's just really a, a, a way to test your soil by comparing clean, untainted soil that you know is good because you maybe buy it by the bag versus the soil in question. And so you'll pot up, you'll get two containers, and in one container you'll put the soil in question, and you'll plant, let's say, bean seeds, for example, because they germinate quickly. And in the other container, it's known sterile soil or clean soil, and you plant more bean seeds in that. And then you observe the uh, uh, germination period and the growth period over the first couple weeks, and then you'll know if that soil in question exhibits signs of problems it was the soil. And the way that you'll know is you'll be comparing it to that pot next to it that had all clean soil. Presumably, it's going to do well and everything's going to thrive. So you've got your side-by-side comparison with the only variable being the soil in question. Yeah, it's a simple way to tell because it's pretty obvious if you've got a lot of the herbicide in it, it's not going to, the beans aren't going to germinate at all. Right. And if it's got some, they'll probably germinate and then be stunted or twisty and stuff. I think I'd probably use more than just two pots, though, because yeah. two pots, you know, there's a little bit more right. variability. But uh, I think it's really important that people, if they are using animal manures in their garden and they're not sure, to do a bioassay every year. We have to take a little break right now, but we'll be back with more gardening right after this. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Joe Lample from Growing a Greener World TV and the podcast, and you do all sorts of fun things. And they're all online. If it's not on your PBS station locally, you can watch it online. I think that is so wonderful of you to do that, because that can't be cheap either. It's not cheap. It's quite an investment, actually, but uh, it's the right thing to do, and we're about providing that information and making it as accessible as possible. So that's what we do. It's just how I roll. <laughs> and you've got that. You've got the shows on. You've got the podcast on. You blog. You've got a Facebook page. Um, and you have show notes with links to mm-hmm. all sorts of cool stuff. Yeah. And one of the things that we will find, I will find it again for you and for me, was how one of the states that originally had this plague of, of clopyrrolids um, in their in their compost was one of the Washington State, I think, maybe, um, and there are a couple others, and they've done it. And I will dig that out, and I'll put the link for it on your show and for for my show, and um, I'll send it over to you too, so you can put it up on there. There's also a lot of great information on the U.S. Composting Council link. Yes, and you are a member of that, are you not, or a spokesperson? I, I'm, I, I'm the spokesperson, and and thanks for bringing that up. But but the fact is, from an information standpoint. 
I learned a lot when I had to do my research once I realized what was happening. Um, that happened. I happened upon that site, and they had tremendous information because, needless to say, they're dealing with it on a commercial level, which can be devastating to a commercial composting company that finds that they have inputs that include persistent herbicide. Because once it's in, you can't get it out. Right. And they're selling it. And that's what happened. I think it was Green Mountain Compost, I think, is the company. And Vermont, I think, maybe? I think well, that sounds like it would be Vermont, but I don't know about that. But I know that one of the municipal composts on the West Coast uh-huh. had that problem because the lawn care companies had started using the Ooh. persistent herbicides to make sure that the you know that their customers' weeds would be or lawns would be weed free. And then the stuff was composted. And commercially, and even with the heat and all the stuff that they go Can't through windrowing, it. it was still in there. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they sell it, and boom, it's it's a bigger problem than it started off being. And just to drive the potency of this to the listeners, it's we're talking about parts per billion, like four parts per billion is still enough to create problems in your landscape. Think about that. That is just scary stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand why this is allowed to be sold. And, you know, I wonder what the effects on the horses are going to be 20 years from now. And well, you know, and the, the, the argument for using it is that it moves through the system of an animal so quickly and it remains intact, which is one of the appeals to farmers, in that you apply it, you know, not frequently, I mean, because it is so persistent. Mm-hmm. You can apply it one time, and it does the job. And in the meantime, the, one of the trade names is graze on because animals can graze on the pasture where you apply that herbicide, and yet there's no, apparently, there's no impact or effect to the animal because what goes in comes out just like it was when it, before it went in, so it doesn't mm-hmm. break down in the body. So from a health standpoint, uh, they say that's one of the appeals to it. But on the downside, because it doesn't break down, it's still there when we use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's tough. I, I don't know. I, I, my dad was a chemist, so I grew up with the cost-benefit ratio. Yeah. But the more I see out there and the more I read, the more it makes me wonder sometimes about what we're going to find out down the line that we don't know of now. A lot. And, you know, we have barely begun to to even find out what's out there, what's under our feet, what's in the soil, uh, what's in the air, the plants' interactions with insects and with one another. We don't know enough yet no. to fool around with Mother Nature in a lot of ways. So I think it's a little scary. By the way, Joe, if you ever want to know about using your own herbicide, I used to, when I would go looking for manure for my gardens, um, I would always look for chickweed and henbit in the pile. Hmm. If chickweed and henbit were mm-hmm. in it, I figure it's probably pretty safe. Right. So, Absolutely, yeah. Because that's... Two you know, broadleaf weeds. Yeah, and it's two broadleaf weeds that a lot of animals very readily eat. Yeah. It's very palatable. That's and of a course, great clue. People can eat chickweed, too. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, that's just a starter. Now, you you go all around the mm-hmm. country mm-hmm. looking for things, looking for people that are growing in a greener way. And, and it's not just gardening, though. It's focusing on gardening. That's right. And so what have you found this year that has really turned you on? I really enjoyed a show that we did with Doug Tallamy, who wrote a book called Bringing Nature Home. 
and he co-authored a book with Rick Dark uh, called The Living Landscape. And the premise behind both books is that, first of all, you know, we in this country and elsewhere are dealing with habitat destruction at a unprecedented rate. Mm-hmm. And so all of these insects that we talk about saving, such as the honeybee, which is not native, but our native pollinators and all these other insects are losing the plants to invasives or to habitat destruction and more likely a combination of both. And, and we've got to do more proactively individually to bring nature home again. And so people who have yards think, well, you know, nature's all around me, isn't it? Well, yes and no. Although you see insects and birds in your garden, it's not nearly as many as we would have if we had the plants that they co-evolve with over hundreds and thousands of years. And yes, although Budlia is a nectar source for butterflies, it's also an invasive plant. And it, you know, it displaces a lot of the things that are that these native insects would prefer to have. As an example, Budley is beautiful; everybody has it. And yet, there, you know, there's a downside to that. But the point is, when we did this show and we called it "Bringing Nature Home" after Doug's book, uh, it was fascinating to understand that most insects are specialist, and so they have mm-hmm. a, a they strongly prefer one type. Of plant, and he—I'll I'll get the numbers wrong here in this example. But one of the stories that Doug told, uh, and he's an entomologist; he's a professor at Delaware uh, University, of Delaware, I think. But anyway, he's fascinated with interactions between insects and plants, and so he has a ten-acre property that is ninety-nine point nine percent natives, and so and it's and it's all natural. So you walk through that property, and it's it is the it's it's the most living habitat of a private residence I've ever seen because that's the way he had it. But he did an experiment one time, and he went outside a couple years ago and at eye level counted the number of caterpillars on an oak tree in his yard. And there were there were like hundreds of species or dozens and dozens of species. And like let's say it was 400 caterpillars on one tree at eye level on this one count. And then he walked across to his neighbor's property and he observed a Bradford pear. And he found two caterpillars of one species, this, you know, the same day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was it. And then he did the same thing with Euonymus on his neighbor's property and something else on Doug's property. But the, it was a drastic comparison between the relationship and the activity when you had native plants on your property, for example, mm-hmm. and how they attracted these caterpillars, which is important, by the way, because birds, if you're trying to attract right. birds, they have to have thousands of caterpillars, I think a day, Doug said, for their clutches to survive. Yeah, A lot of people don't realize that even birds that eat berries, when they're raising their young, they need a better protein, protein source. source. Right. And that's the caterpillars. And if we don't have them, then our bird counts go down, too. And, it, and it's caused me to look at, you know, fall webworm and tent caterpillar in a different way. You know, you see these unsightly webs at the end of your tree, the fall mm-hmm. webworm, and people want to remove them. You know, what can I do to get rid of them? I want to kill all that. Well, you know, maybe you don't, really. Maybe you want to just break open that web and let the birds get to them. Sure. And they'll take care of it for you, which they do. But anyway, I'm, I'm, the long story short was it was a fascinating opportunity to, to get with two powerhouses in the horticultural entomology world and design world 
Rick Dark is um, he's he's more, he he has an interesting background. He was curator of plants for um, Longwood Gardens for twenty years before he went into his own consulting practice. But he has a more refined garden, and he's a neighbor of Doug's. But so his garden is much more well, tame, we'll call it, of mm-hmm. native plants. But he too recognizes the importance of providing a layered landscape from the ground level all the way up to the canopy level and in the understory level the shrub layer the herbaceous layer and the ground layer and how important they are interactively and how certain insects and certain species of birds for example depend on a specific layer within the landscape and you need all those layers to really make it diverse when you came to pick me up this morning to come down and do the show you were looking at the downy woodpecker Mm -hmm. we have downy woodpeckers and um um, red-bellied woodpeckers they operate uh, use the upper story of the trees the taller part for the most part we've got mockingbirds that are almost always nesting you know within six feet or eight feet of the ground and and cardinals also and without one or the other of those you don't have that Right. And without the native trees, and one of the things that I remember one of Doug's shows I, that he did with somebody um, was counting worms on a cherry tree, on our native cherry trees. Uh-huh. And when I think of every spring, the birds come in, when the birds are nesting, if there are worms on those cherry trees, they're gone as soon as the birds come in. I mean, it's yeah. just, a, you know, they, right. they go after that like they go through um, service berries or something like mm-hmm. that. They yeah. just come in and they strip it. It's all gone. And here in Georgia, a few years back, there was a terrible infestation of some kind of oak um, caterpillar that mm-hmm. hadn't, you know, it's one of these cyclical things that mm-hmm. hadn't been around. And within days of people reporting that, flocks of warblers came through and just zoom right through wow. the trees and took them all away. You know, well, people were still figuring out, well, do we spray this or what do we do is it going to kill our trees but nature does it for us and i'm so glad to see in the horticulture world that things are coming around and you know in the vegetable garden too we have so many helpers um we have the beneficial insects we have the the lace wings we have the um just just tremendous numbers of them and as you uh, may have heard me um, cussing about on on Facebook is that I had caterpillars and I, I had stupid cabbage worms, mm-hmm. the, the the striped ones, yeah, and because they like cooler weather. And I had aphids all over, and it was killing me. I mushed a lot of the aphids until one day I saw, aha, we have a parasitized aphid, and you watch it blow up, mm. you know. And then a couple of days later, there's a hole in it because the little tiny wasp has laid its egg yeah. in there, and then it kills the aphid, and then the wasps out and they do it to more i still haven't gotten anything to eat the cabbage worms yet but we'll we'll work on that i'm sure it will come along someday right the normal ones go away pretty good but so yeah that's a really important thing we have to be aware of what's going on in nature and how interrelated we all are so we don't go and mess it up we're going to have to take another little break right now but when we come back we'll talk about more gardening right after this affordable health insurance was the promise of obamacare But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, 
and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Um, today, my guest is Joe Lample, and we have been talking about interrelationships with different plants. That was one of the shows that you did. Mm-hmm. You also became a beekeeper, yeah. and I guess it was your first show this season was all on your experience in your first year of the life of a beekeeper. Yes. And how are you liking the bees now that you've had a little more experience with them? I'm a lot more relaxed with my six hives now than I was with the two than with the two that I started with right from the right from the beginning and um, now they're just kind of on autopilot and one of the things that I have to get around to doing is harvesting the honey we try to do that the first year towards the end of the first year in the fall of the end of the first year but we had a strange year and there wasn't enough honey to really feel like we could take some because the bees were going to need it for survival through Mm -hmm. the winter so we did not but since then i've added four more hives and uh i know there's lots of honey in there and so i've i've been challenged uh to get that honey out as soon as possible because we have lots of takers for that honey and uh, it's one more motivating reason i need to get after it have you had any more swarms i had a lot of swarms i went through a stage this uh Late spring, where I, it was like a swarm a day. Wow! And and the thing was, I and I consulted with my beekeeping friends about this. You don't know whether it's the swarm from the hive underneath the tree because t- typically when they swarm, they don't go very far, mm-hmm. and they they find really a branch close to the hive that they just left. If that's in fact the hive, and you'll see them. And so the first day, I noticed a swarm, and I assumed it was from a particular hive. And you can look in the hive. I mean, there's no reason why you can't. And you can notice a a decline in the number of bees in there. But anyway, my point is, so I I harvested that swarm in the tree, and I captured them. So it was kind of cool. As a new beekeeper, these first experiences are particularly exciting. So when you go from being a little freaked out to be that close to bees, even Mm -hmm. when you're fully suited up, to reaching up to 60,000 clustered bees on a branch and basically grabbing them or getting right up there with them and kind of shaking them off into a baggie or something like that, you feel like you've come a long way. Sure. But after I captured that swarm, the next day there was another swarm that appeared on the same branch. And I called my friend Linda Tillman, my master beekeeper, and I said, what's up with that? And she said, well, there's enough pheromone from the queen bee that was on that branch that another swarm in the area was drawn to it. So it probably didn't come from your hives after the first time, but native swarms from our local swarms 
migrated to that branch because of the pheromone given off by the queen. And that went on for several days. And by that point, I was out of equipment. You know, it was, I, I had one extra hive box to harvest the first swarm, mm-hmm. and I did. That's how I ended up with six. But then I had several after that. I was like, oh, gosh, another one, another one. And I just I didn't do anything with them. And eventually they go off because they're looking for a place to uh, to start their new – or re repopulate their colony so i just let nature take its course so interesting did you get any of that the capture on tape yes um, oh, a lot good. of it i got all of that capture my first capture you're darn Whoa. right i did <laughs> <laughs> i wanted to document that which was the cool thing coincidentally my camera guy was there we were filming another segment for another unrelated show but i texted him on the way i said hurry up you know that swarm is here and and a lot of times as it warms up in the day they'll they'll go sure and I wanted to catch it before they did because I was going to literally catch them. And he got there in time. And I, I literally pulled my pickup truck underneath the branch, right under the branch, and set up a ladder right under the swarm. And two steps up on the ladder rungs, I was my face was face-to-face with 60,000 bees. And there was nothing <laughs> between them and the screen on my face guard. That's Wonderful, because I remember your first show when you were there with Linda, just handling them, and and you were you looked like oh I'm really not sure that I oh, wanted to go through this, but you couldn't back pretty. off now after spending all that. Yeah, not pretty. Yeah, but you know I've shed the gloves now, and and uh, I still wear the coat, and I've been advised to stay with that because unless you've been stung many times, and in my first year I was stung four times, and and every time you get stung. You, load it, you notice it a little bit less than in time before. So you do you either get used to it or you develop a little resistance or immunity to it or it's just no big deal after that. But um, Unless you're allergic. Unless you're allergic, of course, right. But there's some folks that they wear nothing, I mean, as far as bee protection, and they're out there working their swarms. So, wow. Like B.J. Weeks, my, uh, my other local friend who's a good beekeeper, came out, and he, he wears... No bee protection whatsoever. I've gotten stung right by my eye. I wouldn't go out there without right. a veil. Right. Uh, there's, there's, it's just discouraged. not worth it. No. Although it, it just really does encumber your ability to make out. And when, One of the big things about beekeeping is you really have to have a keen eye for identifying what, you, what you're seeing in the hive, that, from the eggs to the nymphs to the stages of life and... And when that screen protection is over your eyes, it, it makes that a little more difficult. And if you have bad eyesight anyway, it makes it even worse. So you'd love to be able to shed that, but it's not worth it. Yeah, it's it's just too scary. You know, having gotten stung, I've gotten stung a couple of times. One right on the lower like lower lid and once right between my eyes. And I'm not particularly allergic. I don't need an anakit, but I do have very large local reaction. My eyes shut down both times. Yeah. I could not see right. to read or do anything. I could just barely make out, you know, getting down the hall to the kitchen. And that's just too scary. It is scary. In my case, one time I got stung. I didn't tuck my pants into my sock. And one time a bee flew up and stung my ankle. Mm-hmm. And do you know it swelled up much larger than when I broke my ankle in high school. And it looked like you know I had a tennis ball mm-hmm. of swelling on my ankle. This bee sting made that look like nothing. So it was one bee sting. Wow. Yeah, so they say there's parts of your body that if you're going to be stung are better to be stung in than others. <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well. Not I, that you can pick. I can tell you that getting stung on your elbow isn't a whole lot of fun either. 
because your elbow bends so much. Oh, right. Yeah, so that's a lot of fun. So if people think that they want to get into bees, and a lot of people are getting into bees, Mm -hmm. a good place to start is with your show. Yeah. And you've got lots and lots of notes. And I think, I know that Georgia has a great beekeepers association, and I know that other states do. Get in touch, call your extension office, find out where they are, and get a mentor. Get a mentor, and, and you also, thank God for the Internet, but you can put in beginning beekeeping and put in your state or your city, and you will find links right to somebody close by that has an organization. And the neat thing about beekeepers, they're like gardeners. They love to share what they know, mm-hmm. and they're, they, they're, they're so welcoming of a newbie, right? So there's uh, lots of classes, and you can take them online. I took several online classes, and we posted those links on our website under growingagreenerworld.com. And uh, like you said, Linda, if you have an opportunity to get a, a real mentor, and a lot of these local bee clubs are set up to provide mm-hmm. that. There's nothing to me. It's one thing to take an online course, and it's another thing to take a seminar in person, but there's no substitute for having somebody – by your side when you're inspecting your own hive, there's nothing like that, and it, and and that's really when you you take it to a new level with your feeling that you can do it. Yeah, having somebody there to point out the different parts because you can see them all the time, but just having somebody to show you, especially if there's a little problem developing that you haven't quite, you know, it's not big enough so that an inexperienced person would see it. You don't know what you're looking at. Yeah, and you can nip it in the bud real quickly. I've seen stuff, I, I was talking to a beekeeper who didn't know that she had mites, and then she sent me a picture. Mm -hmm. She was, she did a little video, Mm -hmm. and in the in the video, it was really obvious that she had mites in there, but they're so small and they're so active that unless it was blown up on the screen, she couldn't really even see that they were there. Right. So that's you know having an extra pair of eyes. Now, have you had any problems like that with with tracheal mites or varroa? We, yeah, or? we did. We've had the we've had the mites. Um, we haven't fortunately had uh, an excessive amount, but. You're told early on that you will have mites, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm an organic beekeeper too, so I kind of let nature take its course with that. And I haven't done anything proactively or responsibly, to, responsively, not responsibly, uh, to deal with the mite situation. But the hives from inspection seem to be generally healthy in number, mm-hmm. with with active, healthy queens, egg laying, and so you know overall. There's not a problem, in spite of the fact that you do have mites. Now, what have you done in your own yard to provide um, pollen and nectar for them? Nice question. We are more focused this year. One of the episodes, in fact, the episode we just finished, it's editing as we speak, but we just finished filming it called Designing the Landscape, and we did it at my property. So I have five acres, and I've cleared the land for three years and when i say clear i just mean selectively clearing out the understory the scrub plants Mm -hmm. the invasives and everything to prepare the way to plant a lot of trees and shrubs and perennials and the layer effect that rick dark talks about Mm -hmm. doug tallamy talks about and it was good timing on my part in that the lessons i learned from interviewing them and reading their books i applied to my own landscape and so in order to provide pollen and nectar sources for the wildlife at my property and to attract more, I focused on native plants that bloom 
successively. So we're not just going for spring bloomers or summer bloomer, bloomers. We're thinking about, well, after fall, what are we going to plant? Winter blooming honeysuckle, uh, Ilex reticulata, you know, things that bury and fruit after the traditional times of the year. Because if you don't have successive plantings of food and nectar sources, where are they going to go? They still need it. Yep. And so we made a conscious effort to source out plants that would provide that. And not only does it do that to attract and and provide uh, habitat for them, but it's also beautiful for us. Sure. I like to have something blooming pretty much 12 months out of the year in yeah. my garden. And sometimes, especially after a cold snap, it may, might not be all that much. But, you know, within a couple of days, they're back out there. And within a couple of days, my neighbor's bees are coming back over. Yeah. Because they like to forage. And a lot of people don't realize how much time bees spend up in the trees in the very early spring, too. Mm-hmm. So if you can get some, I, I, I think you probably already have some really early red maples, don't you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fun to me to watch them all. And, and this is February here. Mm-hmm. You know, you get a little mm-hmm. warm snap, and, yeah. and they're right out there. So I can't, when is that episode going to air? The, in, the last one of the year, which is the last Saturday in December. Ah. Yeah. Okay. So, so something to do on that week after Christmas when you're, you know, <laughs> kind of has some downtime. Yeah. In our area now, they're carrying episodes on, on Create TV mm-hmm. that are several years old. But most people in most states can find you on air, you know, in, in real time close to it uh, during the regular PBS state season, can't they? Yeah. We're in all, we're in 48 states now. And actually, we bleed over in all 50 states. And so we're, you know, we're making our way into Atlanta. We're, we're here now uh, through some of the cable channels. Mm-hmm. So that's good. But uh, yeah, they can find us on, on Growing a Greener World. They can either just watch it online or there's a station finder t- uh, link where they can enter their zip code or city, and it'll bring up the station and the times and the episodes for the next four weeks of what we're airing and when, so they can they can know on TV. I think the coolest part, though, is online. And I don't normally like to watch stuff online, but your shows are so good, hmm. and it's absolutely worth it. Good and, know. you know, people can just tell, take it along in their, their mobile or, yeah. or whatever. Now, we've got a, just a little couple of minutes where you said Growing a Greener World TV. GrowingAGreenerWorld.com is the Dot website. Com. Yeah. Okay. And we have to wrap it up for this week, but I am so happy that you were able to come down here and talk to me. I know you're... Your schedule is just absolutely crazy, but this is wonderful. Thank you so much, and we'll be back with more America's Homegrown Veggies next week. I hope you'll join us. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.